Good morning to you all. My name is Darren. I'm one of the, uh, the shepherds on staff, and I want to welcome those of you who are here in the room with me this morning, and those of you who may be joining us online. We're excited that you're with us. And if you're, uh, if you're just stepping in and you haven't been with us over the last week or two, uh, we are in the midst of a study in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically out of the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. Maybe you've got one of our Matthew journals. We're in Matthew chapter 5. The passage we've just read is the text we'll be studying this morning. But if you're not super familiar with the Bible, uh, you're looking for like the last sort of the last third to the last half. Matthew comes right before uh, Mark, Luke, and John. If you find any of those, you're in the, in the right area. But Matthew chapter 5 is what you're looking for. Now, before we dive into our study this morning, I do have just a, a couple little quick items of business. The first one uh, has to do with... Uh, the idea that we have been doing some closed captioning. So on the live stream, we've got lots of people that are at home, and some of those folks uh, use the closed captioning because either they are hard of hearing or have some other disability that makes that helpful. We've been using our YouTube channel as a way to provide closed captioning, but we've recently found that the YouTube channel, uh, it ends up costing us about $600 a week, which is no big deal, but we found out that Facebook will do, uh, will do closed captioning for free. So just as we steward the funds of this church, we've realized that if we move the live stream to Facebook, Facebook for those who are hearing impaired, uh, that closed captioning can, can be happening there for no expense. What I need to find out is if those of you who use the closed captioning at home, so even now you may be watching this with closed captioning, if you use closed captioning, what I need to know is do you have Facebook? Because if you don't, We'll keep it on YouTube and everything will stay right where it's at. We want to serve you well and take care of you. But if you have Facebook and that's a viable option, um, that's just a way for us to be faithful in stewarding the resources we have here at the church. So you can email us uh, and let us know your opinion one way or another on Facebook streaming with closed captioning. You can send that email to, uh, I think we were going to put an email address on screen. No, maybe. It was on screen. All right. See, the screens are behind me. So what am I supposed to know? Uh, so there's that. And uh, Let's see. I feel like there was something else I was going to talk about. Somebody, do you remember what my other announcement was? What is it? Oh, of course. Yeah. So kids, if you're at home uh, or even if you're in the room and you have not yet had the opportunity to download or to uh, get ready the Kids Connect video, every week we do a video called Kids Connection that comes out of the very same text. So this week it's right here out of Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 26. And it's just a way for kids to study the same text, but with teaching that's kind of more on their level. In fact, I watched the video for Kids Connection last night for this text just to figure out what I should teach. And it's really funny and really good. Um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Matt and Miss Nikki and Miss Sheila do a great job. Rexplosion is on. You guys know Rexplosion? He's a powerful, powerful stuntman. Doesn't matter. But um, if you, thank you for laughing at that. Um, kids, if you're at home, we would want you to get that. And you can get the Kids Connection video on our app or on the website. We just want to make sure you've got it as another resource to help you study the same text. Okay, those are my announcements. Let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount. As we began our study of this last week, uh, we were looking at the fact that right out of the gate, Jesus is trying to recalibrate our thinking about what life in the kingdom of God is like. He's trying to reorient our understanding of what has value and what doesn't. And so we looked last week in the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 5 at the idea of what the character of a kingdom dweller is, what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And it's different. In fact, our, our, the title of our series is Forget What You've Heard. Jesus will say throughout this sermon, he'll say, you've heard this thing, but I tell you this thing. And he begins that in the first section by reorienting us about the difference of the character of a kingdom dweller. He says things like, congratulations to those who were spiritually poor, right? To be congratulated are those who mourn, who recognize all that's been lost. 
He says, blessed or congratulations to those who are meek and humble, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? Who are merciful. He goes through this list and, and it's just kind of, it's just kind of a, a, a whole different way of looking at life. Because in the culture in which we live and the culture in which Jesus first delivered this message, it wasn't the meek or the humble or the spiritually poor that had an elevated position or that should be enviable or that should be congratulated. It was the people who appeared to be spiritually powerful and it was the people who were arrogant and prideful. Those were the ones who were people of position that everybody looked up to. And Jesus says, not so in the kingdom of God, that in the kingdom of God, there is firstly a need to recognize our own spiritual bankruptcy, which then leads to an outworking with our fellow man that is humble and generous and kind and merciful. But he finishes that list of traits by saying that in the kingdom of God, if you live this way, you will also be persecuted. In fact, if we back up and just look at verses 10, 11, and 12, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, congratulations are in order for those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. He'll say something very similar when he gets to Matthew 10. He'll say, all men will hate you because of me. I think he knows as he's talking to his disciples and then by extension the crowd that's gathered around there on the mountainside that as soon as he talks about persecution, there will be some of them who are thinking, yeah, maybe no thanks, right? Maybe persecution, like I didn't know this was going to be about persecution, but I'm not really sure that's something I'm interested in. And there will be a temptation for those of us who know persecution is not only a possibility, but a guarantee for kingdom dwellers. There will be a temptation for us to try and navigate our lives in such a way so as to avoid the difficulty and so as to avoid the persecution. I remember um, when my son William was really little, just a tiny guy, like still sitting in a high chair, right? Uh, Will, one of Will's favorite foods, I don't even know if you can call this a food, but one of Will's favorite foods was maple syrup. And Will liked maple syrup on pancakes, appropriate things, pancakes and waffles. But he also just liked maple syrup on whatever. He liked it on sandwiches. He liked it on vegetables. He liked it on hot dogs. He didn't care. He just wanted maple syrup on everything, right? And uh, that made it kind of tricky to navigate interaction with William if you didn't want to smell like maple syrup. You know what I'm saying? So I would come downstairs in the morning to go to work and I'd be dressed for work and ready to go. This was back in the olden days when we used to go to work and... Uh, I'd come downstairs and I'd be all ready to go and I'd give my wife a kiss and I'd give my daughter a kiss and talk to my other kids. And then there's little Will in his high chair and he's just covered with maple syrup, just a sticky mess. And I, I want to express some affection, but I also don't want to be smelling like maple all day. And so there was always kind of a temptation to just sort of wave to him from a distance. You know what I'm saying? To not get in super close because I didn't want to deal with the after effects of that. But I also recognized that it was worth it to lean in and to get in close and to give that kid a hug, even if there was a cost for me, even if I ended up smelling stinky the rest of the day, it was worth it to invest in that kid's life. Does that make sense? I did not avoid hugging him, even though it made me smell weird afterwards, right? Jesus is saying in the text that we're studying this morning, look, there will be persecution, but it's worth it to push through. It will be hard, there will be a cost, but it is worth it to push through. Because on the other side of persecution, you and I as followers of Christ have the opportunity to be a preservative in this world and to illuminate the darkness in this world. 
we have the opportunity to provide illumination and preservation. And he does that in, in this next section. So I want you to see the logical order of what he's thinking. He, this next section he talks about with regard to salt and light is not something he grabbed randomly and just threw in. This flows logically. This whole section, this whole sermon flows logically. But the logical step here is to say, hey, followers of me, my disciples that are sitting here, Jesus says, you have a role. And that role isn't limited by persecution. It's something that happens in spite of the persecution or in some cases, even because of the persecution. So here's the way he continues and he's teaching the sermon. He's just talked about the prophets who were persecuted. And then he says this in 13, uh, 13 through 16. Let's read it together. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Jesus says there's a danger here and that is for kingdom dwellers or for ambassadors or followers of Christ to become good for nothing, to become good for nothing. And it's worth us this morning as we evaluate this text to think about our own lives, to think about our own discipleship, our followership of Christ and ask ourselves, have I become good for nothing as a follower of Jesus? And I don't mean that in a kind of a winking way. I mean it in a literal way. It is possible to become worthless as a follower of Christ. We are salt. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, it's important to understand salt has a couple of different characteristics, and it's even different in the perception first century than it would have been than it is today. We think about salt, and we think of it as something that is a flavor additive, right? It makes things taste better. And certainly, there are places in the Bible that refer to salt as an additive, something that makes, uh, makes things taste better. That's not out of the question with regard to the, to the New Testament here. And in fact, Jesus himself says, if salt has lost its taste, it's certainly in Jesus's mind that taste is one of the things that salt does. It makes things better. But you don't want to just think about Christians or followers of Christ as being people who make the world taste better somehow. That is somewhat true. But in the first century, salt was primarily used as a preservative. Remember, they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have any kind of uh, ice boxes, right? They had no way to preserve. If you, if you slaughtered one of your animals and you wanted to eat that meat more than just that day, the only way to preserve that from decay was to rub it with salt, to preserve it with salt. So salt was very valuable because it allowed you to maximize your investment in your livestock, right? So when Jesus talks about salt, the first thing in the first century mind that they would have thought of is not, ooh, salt makes the world taste better, and as followers of God, we need to make the world a little more spicy, right? They would have thought preservative. Why? Well, because we live in a world that is decaying. We live in a world that is corrupt and falling apart as a consequence of sin. And what Jesus says here is that kingdom dwellers, those who follow him and have a kingdom mindset, who are spiritually poor and who mourn and who are meek and who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness and merciful, all the things we talked about last week, have a preservative impact upon the world, right? They do add some flavor, certainly. And there's also a sense in which I saw one commentator said, in some ways, Christians should create thirst. Salty things make us thirsty, right? And so there is a sense, too, I don't know whether Jesus was pointing at that or not, but when we think about salt, we certainly recognize that it creates a thirst. I think Jesus is primarily talking about the preservative effect of his people on the planet. We have the opportunity not to erase the decay, only Jesus does that, right? 
So the sin that is destroying our world and the sin that divides people and separates man from God, you and I don't have the ability in our own strength to, to slow down that degradation or to slow down that decay. Only Jesus does that through his death and resurrection. But what we do have the ability to do is to preserve people, even in a temporal way, until such time as they can be permanently reconciled and redeemed by Christ. He says, you're the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its taste, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled upon. He also talks about us as being light. And he says, there's a danger, not only of being good for nothing with regard to being a preservative, but there's a danger of covering up your light. Listen to the way he says it. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Why why would you want to hide a city? You, You put it on a hill on purpose so that it's visible, so that it becomes a beacon, so that it's a place you can run to for safety. The implication here is that God has placed his people, his ambassadors, on a hill for visibility. That we're meant to be visible, that we've been set, even just, if if you have one of the Matthew journals, maybe you circle and you underline the word set, a city set on a hill. The implication there is of purpose. That God has put his people on the hill with intention so that we would be visible. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Why would you try to hide Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is a danger that we'll be good for nothing, that our salt will become diluted, that our city will be hidden, that our lamp will become covered, but we've been set on a hill for a purpose. Well, why would the salt become diluted? Because we're nervous about persecution. Because we're nervous about what other people think, what other people will say. And that isn't just persecution from people who don't know anything about the Bible. It's also persecution from people who consider themselves to know more about the Bible than you do. He's going to talk about Pharisees and scribes in a second. But he says, in your fear of persecution, you may be tempted to dilute your saltiness, right? To water it down to some degree. He says, you may be tempted to try and cover up your light. Or to somehow move that city on a hill down into a valley, which is a physical impossibility. It's been set on the hill on purpose. He says what? Rather, let your light shine. Let your light shine. You're meant to be this light. We see all kinds of pictures of what light does in the Bible. We see light as a beacon. We see light as a guide. We see light for exposure in John 3, 19, when it's talking about Jesus, the light. That the light has come into the world, and yet men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So light is meant to be a beacon, a a call for safety. It's meant to protect. It's meant to expose. It's meant to guide, right? All of these things, the people of God have the opportunity to provide in our visibility. This light can be a catalyst. We're all meant to preserve these things. That's what Jesus is saying in this first section. Don't lose it because of your fear of persecution, but preserve your saltiness. Embrace your visibility. And shine for the sake of his glory. Don't miss that at the end of 15. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. That they'll see your good works. Note again, he's already established what those good works are. It's hungry and thirsting after righteousness. It's being merciful. It's being spiritually poor and meek. That, that's the characteristic of the kingdom. He says, if you live this way, yes, there's persecution that comes, but you push through the persecution, just like I had to push through the maple syrup to put a kiss on that little kid's forehead. You push through the persecution, and on the other end, you have the opportunity as a follower of Christ to live in your purpose, which is to preserve and to illuminate. But there will be a temptation for you to cover that up. Why would you do that, he says? Why would you cover it? Why would you dilute it? 
Influence in the midst of darkness and decay is what he's calling us to. I think it's interesting to think about the fact that even as Christians, sometimes we bemoan. We bemoan the fact that uh, in some ways Christianity or evangelicalism or whatever is getting trampled in our world today, right? We feel like we're being trampled. I think we would look at the teaching of Jesus and say, have we become good for nothing? Is it possible that religion or Christianity or evangelicalism is being trampled in our world because the world doesn't understand the value that followers of Christ present? And is it possible that they don't understand the value that followers of Christ present because we've hidden our lights, because we failed to be a preservative? The world would look at the church and go, why do I need that? It's not, I mean, the world as we know it and the world in the first century understood the importance of preservation and the importance of illumination. And the world we live in today understands that there is decay in our world, that there is brokenness, that there is division, that there is pain and suffering. Everybody knows that things are hard. What if the church, according to the teaching of Christ, could be a preservative in our world? You think the world would still want to trample us? No, they want to trample us because we've diluted our salt, because we've hidden our light, because we're no longer an illuminating presence. He says, your salt and light, don't lose it. There's a danger that you could become good for nothing. He says, kingdom is different than what was expected. He goes on, and I think as he's talking about this, uh, as he's talking about having this influence, when he says, let your light shine before others that they would see your good works and give glory to your father, I think he ends up thinking about the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and the scribes that we've talked about before are people who are really good at looking religious, at checking all the religious boxes. And if you looked at them from a distance, you'd go, yeah, they're adhering to all of, the, all of the, the laws, right? They're doing all the religious stuff. But Jesus is going to say, to be salt and light, to be influential, it's not about just doing all the religious stuff and getting a puffed up chest about that. In fact, that's the opposite of kingdom life. He says, to live this way, it's different than what you think. It's not, it's not the law the way you're thinking about it. But I think he knows there are people sitting in the, in the crowd that are listening that are wondering to themselves, is Jesus getting rid of the law here? Is he getting rid of everything that we know and everything we've studied? Look at what he says as we continue on in 17. Not only has he talked to us about our role, but now he's going to talk to us about his own revelation. His own revelation. Our role and his revelation. Look at this in 17 through 20. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, if your thinking here is that I've come as a revolutionary to set aside the law, that's the Old Testament law that God had given to his people. If you thought that I've come here to do away with that, you've missed the point here. I'm not abolishing the law. He says, I've come to fulfill it. This idea of fulfilling the law is really interesting. If you're taking notes this morning, maybe circle the word fulfill or underline it there. I've come to fulfill it, he says. For truly I say to you, verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, not only do you have a role in the kingdom to be salt and light, but I've come with a role too. And I've come to reveal the fulfillment of why the law exists. Now, Jesus fulfills the law in a couple of different ways. He fulfills the law in a couple of different ways. And before I even talk to you about how he does that, let's just think about what it means to fulfill a thing, right? If we were to say, if you, if you think about a seed, right? A seed for any plant, a, a, the seed for a tree. If you take and you, and you smash that seed, you destroy it. You abolish it. It's ruined. You smash it, right? 
But if you take that same seed and you plant it in the earth, you fulfill it, right? It's a, it's a continuance in the same direction, a furtherance in the same direction. Jesus says, I haven't come to smash or to destroy the law, to throw it away. I've come to be the fulfillment of it, right? To be the, the further continuance in the same direction the law was always pointing. And part of the way Jesus does this on just a very practical sense is that Jesus lives a perfect life. So we understand from the scripture that Jesus never sinned in thought, word, deed, or attitude. That he was like us in every respect, and he was tempted like us, but he never sinned, right? So in one just very literal sense, Jesus fulfills the law by never failing to glorify God in thought, word, deed, or attitude. You and I, we fail to glorify God in thought, word, deed, and attitude all the time. But Jesus is the perfect representation of what a man or a woman can be, right? He fulfills the law by by adhering to the moral code on one level. I would say on an even greater level, Jesus fulfills the law by being a perfect embodiment of love. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We see both in the teaching of Jesus and in the teaching of Paul that the way in which the Old Testament law is fulfilled, the way you keep the law is by loving God and loving one another, loving your neighbors. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, in answer to a question that the Pharisees asked him. He said, they asked him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They're they're trying to trap Jesus. And he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says, look, if you get these two right, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor like you love yourself, everything else will be taken care of. All the rest of the law is fulfilled there. Paul echoes something similar in Romans chapter 13, verse 8. In Romans 13, 8, Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Do you hear it? He's just echoing what Jesus has already said. How do we keep the law? By loving God and loving others. So when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, I've come to fulfill the law, on one sense, just from a practical level, literal level, he lives a moral life, a perfect moral life. On another level, he is a physical embodiment of the love of God for mankind by coming in the incarnation, by taking on flesh, by assuming and and taking on the sins of the world and dying in our place, even though he didn't deserve that, By rising from the dead and extending to all of us broken sinners, lost and dead in our sin, by extending to us by his grace, resurrection, life, he has fulfilled the law by loving God and loving us. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So in one way, his his incarnation, his sacrifice, his distribution of resurrection life by his grace through our faith is a fulfillment of the law also. But on a technical level, and with regard to ceremonial law, there had to be the shedding of blood for remission of sin. Right? There had to be the shedding of blood for remission of sin. We studied this when we were in Hebrews together. That from a ceremonial standpoint, when Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it or to complete it, to finish painting the picture, to plant the seed so that the bloom is is visible, right? What Jesus does in coming and dying in our place is that he pays the price for our sin. And he sits down at the right hand of the Father. You may remember this from our study in Hebrews, but in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, it says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You hear it? Through a single offering. What, what's that saying? It's saying that Jesus hasn't come to do away with sacrificial law, that he was the fulfillment of the law, that all of those sacrifices, the sacrifices that people made year after year after year, they found their fulfillment in the sacrifice of Christ. He doesn't throw the Old Testament law out. He fulfills it. He fulfills it. The Old Testament law is met. It's not discarded, it's met. And so on the other side of his fulfilling of the Old Testament law, we have the ability to live a life he's describing here in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a life that cares more about what's happening in our internal life, working itself out in the external, than simple external compliance for the visibility of others, which is the problem with the the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees, as we talked about last week, were really good at making sure the outside of the cup and the dish was clean, but the inside was dirty. They looked like whitewashed tombs that were beautiful and ornately carved on the outside, but inside were full of dead men's bones, right? Jesus says, God was never concerned with you just making yourself look good on the outside. And so as Jesus continues back to Matthew 5, you see the flow of his thinking. He says, you're the salt of the earth. You have a role. And in my revelation, I make that role clear. I make it clear that you can be the salt and the light. Why? Because we're not doing away with the Old Testament law. But we're saying that God was never interested in just routine compliance with external parameters, right? That he was always looking at a transformation of the heart. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Listen, we are not still making yearly sacrifices where we bring our sheep to the, to the high priest, right? Or to the rabbi. We don't do that anymore. You know why we don't practice that anymore? Because he has fulfilled it. So when he says here, not one of these things will pass away until it is accomplished. Once it's accomplished, it's done, right? We don't have to be stuck in that Old Testament thing. We have been redeemed by Christ. He says, verse 19, pay close attention to this. Therefore, he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I want you to note here that there are only two options. There are only two options. For us, there's either doing what Jesus has laid out, living like Jesus has laid out and teaching it, or not doing it and teaching it. But look again, there is no option that doesn't contain teaching. There is no option that doesn't contain teaching. You can either live according to the way of Christ, and by living that way, you'll teach it. Or you can live according to the way of the popular culture, or you can live according to the way of the scribes and the Pharisees with just a bunch of external religion and no transformation of the inside. But no matter how you live, whether you live according to the precepts of Christ, or if you live in opposition to the precepts of Christ, you're teaching either way. Don't miss it, right? People are watching us all the time. We talk in this church about the circle strategy, right? The circle strategy is just me recognizing that I've got probably 10 to 15 people who are watching me all the time, who are listening to what I say. They see me in and out, and some of them are followers of Jesus, and some of them aren't. My kids are in my circle. My wife is in my circle. Some of my coworkers are in my circle. But I got people in the neighborhood, right, who are watching me. And so if I'm living in accordance to the teaching of Jesus, a spiritual poverty, a mourning over what's been lost, a meekness and humility, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a mercifulness, right? All of these things we've already seen Jesus lay out. If I'm living like that, according to his values, I'm teaching it. I'm teaching it. And if I've chosen to live according to my own way, if I've chosen to just put on a religious mask, if I've chosen to just comply with with the precepts of this world... 
I'm teaching that also. Jesus says, if you are obedient and you teach, you'll be considered the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who brings the most glory to God. In the kingdom of heaven, the currency, right? There is no dollars. There are no euros, right? We're not trading beads or trinkets. What has value? The currency of the kingdom of God is his glory. God's glory is the currency of the kingdom. So who, who has standing in the kingdom of God? It's the one who has gained the most glory for God in their life and teaching. And the one who has gained the least amount of glory for God in the kingdom, or who has the lowest status in the kingdom of God, is the one who has brought no glory to God, but rather has sought the glory of man for himself or for other institutions. Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of these, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And when he says exceeds, he doesn't mean you have to be more meticulous to check the boxes or that you have to be more legalistic or more pharisaical. He's not saying put on a better show. The righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisee is the righteousness of a transformed inside that ultimately affects the outside. It's a transformed inside. That's the righteousness that exceeds them. But if all we care about is putting on a good front for other people, convincing other people that we're good people or that we do good things, our righteousness is bankrupt, he says here. So then he's going to give us some examples. He's going to give us some examples of what this means. So in the, in the coming weeks, we're going to look at six examples. I'm going to give you one of them this morning in the, in the remainder of our text. But he gives basically six illustrations of what he means by this. That it isn't just uh, compliance with the law, but it's actually a transformation of heart. And the first example he gives us is with regard to murder, right? I, just by a show of hands here this morning, how many of you are murderers? Is there anybody in here who murdered anybody? Just don't be afraid. Just raise your hand. Any murderers? No? You, you chickens. All right, whatever. I'm guessing there's probably no murderers in here, right? And there were probably no murderers in the crowd that Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, right? But Jesus looks at them and he says, you've been told. So here's one of those places, giving us a practical example. Look at verse 21. A practical example of this righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You can imagine the people, oh, that's right, we've heard it. Yep, yep, don't murder. It's a bad thing. Killing people, bad, right away, right? And Jesus says, but I say to you, so in essence, what's he saying here? He's saying, forget what you've heard, right? Forget what you've heard. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Here's what I think is funny about this. I think that after Jesus finishes that last section where he goes, uh, where he goes, hey, you know what? If, you, if you're living in obedience to this and teaching it, you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. And if you're living in disobedience to this and teaching it, you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. I'm guessing that there are some Pharisees in that crowd who are like, fool, right? Raka, this guy's an idiot. I think there's a practical example of someone in the crowd who would say, I hear this guy's teaching and I don't like it. He's trying to pull the rug out from underneath a lifetime of pharisaical behavior. I got all kinds of status. I got all kinds of power. I got all kinds of influence. I have lived according to the law. And this knucklehead up here, this Jesus of Nazareth is trying to say, this doesn't count for anything in the kingdom of God. That's a fool right there. And so Jesus goes, you guys think murder is wrong, but let me tell you, if you have anger in your heart, you're in violation. If you, if you hate your brother, it's the same thing that leads 
towards murder. It's the thing God was actually trying to get at when he forbade murder. If you call someone else a fool, like the dude who's leaving right now, right? If you call someone else a fool, you're in violation of this principle. What's Jesus saying? God was never in establishing the law. He was never just saying, hey, you're, if you haven't killed anybody else, you're good, right? If you, you can lay your head on the pillow and rest peacefully if you've not killed anybody else. Jesus goes, did you really think that's what God cared about? No, you see, murder is just an outworking. It's just a symptom of an internal problem. Murder is an outworking of an inner hatred and an inner pride that says what I want and what I desire is more important than another person's life. Jesus says, you got to look at what God was actually after. Here's where the law is fulfilled, where the seed is planted so the bloom can grow. Jesus says, there are many of you who've done all the right stuff according to the letter of the law, but we're not looking for the letter of the law. God was always looking at the transformation of your heart. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be uh, liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire, right? He says, you need to have a heart. What? Not a heart of anger and pride and judgment and legalism. Not a pride that's going to stand up and yell, you fool, and walk out. Not a, a, a mindset that looks at other people and says, oh, they're empty-headed or they're stupid idiots or I'm the smartest guy on the block. That's not the kind of heart you want to have. The kind of heart you want to have is what? Well, go back to the beginning of his sermon. Spiritually impoverished. Spiritually bankrupt. Mourning over the loss. Meek towards your brother. Hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Merciful, Right? Go back and look at the character traits. None of them fit with a heart of anger and hatred and dismissal of our fellow man. Jesus goes, but there are some of you sitting here who feel like you can pat yourself on the back because you've not actually killed anybody else. I'm telling you, it was never really about murder. It was always about being humble and kind. It was always about being love. I've come to fulfill the law, which is fulfilled in the love of God and the love of other. So Jesus says this. He gives two practical examples. He says in verse 23, so... If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. What's Jesus saying here? He actually goes so far as to say that reconciliation among our brothers and sisters... Unity and peace among our brothers and sisters is more important than religious practice. You can slice and dice this any way you want, but what Jesus is literally saying is that if you're bringing your sacrifice to the altar, you're being a good Hebrew person and you're bringing your sacrifice and you remember someone who's got a grudge against you. Set that. Now he doesn't say ignore the sacrifice, right? He says, go and take care of the thing and come back to it. So we understand the sacrifice is important. Religious practice isn't something to be entirely discarded, but in the kingdom of God, religious practice is not as important as loving your neighbor. It's not as important as caring about other people. So Jesus says, if you're offering a sacrifice and you remember someone's got a grievance against you, go and make amends. What's he saying? He gives us two, two examples here. The first one he says is that you should be the first one to offer reconciliation. That in many cases, when it comes to your mind that someone has a grievance against you, you don't wait for them to come and say, hey, we need to work this out. You don't come and wait for them to file a lawsuit against you. You don't wait. You be the first mover towards reconciliation. That's a kingdom mind. That when I see someone has a grievance, I'm, I'm getting ready to offer a sacrifice, and I see there's a grievance against me, I go and make it right. 
And then he says, if you're on your way to court, this is the second example. He says, if you're on your way to court, well, why would you be on your way to court? That's when your neighbor has demanded reconciliation from you, right? That's when your neighbor has demanded retribution. So in the first example, you be the catalyst for reconciliation when no one has mentioned it. And in the second example, when your neighbor has demanded reconciliation or retribution from you, you be the one to humbly and quickly, he says, offer it before a judge has to make the decision. Don't leave it up to a judge to make the decision. You humbly and quickly make retribution. The way, the way I would summarize this is that Jesus is calling us here to make the first move toward reconciliation before it is asked, to make the first move toward reconciliation before it is asked, and to make a quick and humble move toward reconciliation after it is demanded. To make a quick and humble move towards reconciliation after it is demanded. Why? Why? Well, this is just one of six examples of what it means to be salt and light, which our world desperately needs. They need preservation. They need that savoriness that the kingdom of, the kingdom of God provides. They need illumination, both for guidance, for safety, right? There are all kinds of reasons why the world in which we live needs the light of Christ reflected out of us. And how does that happen? It doesn't happen with our strict adherence to religious codes or our legalism or our judgmentalism or our hatred towards our neighbors. No, it happens when we recognize that Jesus came to fulfill the law, that he has a role for us that is made clear because of his revelation. And then in response, we live a life of love. We have the opportunity to fulfill the law by living in accordance with the pattern he set. To be people of reconciliation, to be people of care and concern. We can be that light in the world. We live our lives in light of the fulfilling life and teaching of Christ. This is what kingdom life looks like. These are the values of the Lord Jesus. And we either live them and teach them or we set them aside and teach them. But God is glorified when we adhere to the pattern that he has set for us. A pattern of spiritual poverty and meekness. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us, even now. There may be some watching this live stream uh, right in this moment, or maybe they're watching it later this week. There might be people watching this sermon uh, on Tuesday or Friday, or it could be in the middle of the night. And God, I pray that you would help us, stir us to think seriously about whether or not we've been concerned with external compliance or internal transformation that only comes from you. God, I pray that you would stir in us a desire to be people who put on display your heart, who reveal your heart as salt and light in the world. That we would be the first ones to offer reconciliation before it's asked and that we would be quick and humble to make reconciliation when it's demanded because of who you are. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.